So I was at Lowe's yesterday, or maybe it was the day before. I was looking for uh, an impact drive special drill to uh, help me change the blades on my mower more easily. Anyway, as I'm, as I'm looking in the drill section, and I'm kind of like finding sort of what I need, but not quite, and I'm trying to kind of figure it out. And it was really frustrating because, okay, normally I'm the type of person, I don't, wanna, I don't want people to come up and say, hey, can I help you, sir, at a store? I just want to go look and whatever. If I need you, I'll ask you. So I always, you know, when Lowe's and Home Depot, they first came on the scene, you'd go in there and someone was always like, can I help you? Can I help you? And I'm like, no, 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 just leave me alone. Let me look. Well, lately, in the last couple of years, it seems like it's the opposite. You can't get anybody. So I'm, I'm in this section for like 20, 30 minutes and I'm kind of trying to figure stuff out. I'm pulling out my phone to try to figure stuff out because I'm trying to decide like, do I need a quarter inch drive, a half inch drive, is brushless, there's all these options, whatever. I'm comparing prices. Does it matter? which brand it is. And not only that, but what was on display was not the same as what they actually had for sale in boxes. And they had the things in boxes locked, like padlocked behind like a metal grid, which I've never seen before. Like, I don't know, are people stealing drills all of a sudden? Um, I've never seen that before in, in anywhere that I've lived. Well, maybe Washington, DC, but you know, we're, we're not in a big city here. So that was kind of frustrating. So I couldn't get out the boxes and see what they had. There was also shortages like they didn't have the batteries for the drills they didn't like anyway i finally get a guy to come over and i ask him a couple questions he didn't know anything about drills or power tools like like i knew more than him and i'm like okay so an impact drive do i need this you know and he's like oh here's a drill how about this one and i'm like well that's not an impact drive. anyway he didn't know anything and i thought after that experience i thought man it feels like uh tacit knowledge is like gone or just you know localized expertise where you know you go to a, a hardware store and you, you find a guy in the tool aisle and he just knows a lot more about tools than you do that's why he's working there right and i don't want to fall into the things used to be better everything's getting worse um mentality uh some things are definitely getting worse uh, in the last two years since the, since the government decided to just go full on national socialist since, <laughs> since early 2020, a lot of things have gotten worse and I'm not going to deny that, but, um, but I was trying to put in perspective, it's like, okay, why is there this apparent loss of tacit knowledge or, or, you know, employees at a place like Lowe's or Home Depot don't seem to know anything about what they're doing anymore. Um, very few anyway. And it used to be a lot more common. And I thought, well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one, they don't, they don't need to. I mean, I was pulling up stuff on my phone and looking there anyway, and they can do the same. So you're always a quick internet search away from many of the types of questions you used to have to keep in your head. So you don't need to know all that stuff. Um, and I also thought, you know, you always got to ask the question compared to what? So like, oh, this is really frustrating. Nobody here can help me. They don't know very much. Well, compared to what? Compared to a world before Lowe's and Home Depot and the, and the large box stores existed, um, yes, your local hardware store would have some really grumpy guy who knew everything about tools. And if you didn't know anything about tools, uh, it was kind of intimidating because they didn't speak your language. Um, their inventory was very low. It would take them a long time to get in anything if you wanted to order it. The prices were very high. Uh, there was like one in town. It usually wasn't very convenient to get to, and it had very limited hours. Like that was the reality. That was what a hardware store was for the most part. So now all this stuff is plentiful, tons of varieties, always in stock until uh, the last year or two. Um, you know, a lot of variety, much lower prices, you know, great hours, convenient, all this stuff. So it's like, it's, you can't got to compare apples to apples. You can't compare the guy at the little local, you know, Tim's hardware um, from yesteryear to uh employee number 85 at Lowe's. Um, and, and again, the information accessibility, right? Like there, there wasn't any other way once upon a time to know something about which tool was right for the job without asking a human person who had done a lot of work with those tools and knew. You couldn't, you couldn't look it up anywhere. I mean, there weren't even books that were like, oh, let me just go look up. Uh, what's better, an impact wrench or an impact drive? Or this tool, right? Like, or driver, but I don't even know the names of these things properly. Um, 
So, you know, that's changed. That's changed. And I think that, I think that is important, but it's interesting because I thought, well, there was this sort of like golden transitory transitional phase where the big box stores came about all this convenience and lower prices and all this other stuff that I mentioned before, much more inviting, friendly, et cetera, to, to normies. And the people who worked there knew a decent bit about this department they worked in, the section they worked in. They worked in the pay department. They knew a lot about paint. If they worked in the tools, they worked in. That, that used to be the case. And I think those people have either aged out or moved up to other roles or what. But now it's very, very rare that someone at a store knows a lot. At, at like a, just a you know, mainstream, maybe if it's like a high-end store. Um, knows much about the products. Anyway, this is a huge setup for what the main topic that I'm talking about here. Uh, and it's, it's almost just barely connected, <laughs> but I, I just, it got me thinking, it made the connection in my head. So I was thinking about firing employees, like, okay, so if somebody's really like just slack, they don't know much about stuff and, you know, when do you fire them? Of course, market conditions have a, a big part to play because if you can't find anybody better to replace them with, um, even if they're not creating very much value, you may, you may have to keep them. They may be better than the next best alternative. But the ethics of firing someone, and this is what connects to the main topic at hand, you know, is it wrong for a business person to fire employees, um, you know, just because they're not maximizing profit? Now, of course, from an economic, political, sort of general ethical standpoint, I think it's incredibly easy to argue that that's not wrong. That's just business. But the reason I asked the question is because I was listening to a podcast by Jonathan Pajot, who I really enjoy. He has a podcast called The Symbolic World. Um, and I, I always wait till they come out on podcast. I, don't, I hate consuming things on YouTube. Uh, I just prefer being able to you know, take a walk and listen to a podcast. So I listened to him on there, but he's an he's a orthodox icon carver who has a very, very interesting and I would say enlightening perspective, understanding of the world on like a very high level of symbols, um, what they mean, how they represent the structure of reality as conveyed through ancient Christianity, um, which is, you know, sort of still practiced in the Orthodox church in a way that's much more layered and rich with rituals and symbols than in certainly in the Protestant church. Um, and so it felt like I've really enjoyed him in the last year or two, especially because there's, there's really not any non symbolic, non mythical, non-religious, uh, way to make sense of the world that we live in now. <laughs> a few, three, four, five years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. You could get away with some pretty thin sort of materialist worldviews. You can't now there's just too much weird stuff happening that can't be explained unless you understand these deeper patterns of what's going on in the unseen realm. And so I've really enjoyed his podcast. I think it's fascinating. I think he's a really, really, um, really deep thinker and I've gained a ton from it, but he said something in a recent episode. It was, um, about, is Christianity revolutionary? Well, he, he did two episodes. The first was, uh, is Christian, Christianity is not revolutionary. And he kind of laid out the reasons why, that it's not about, you know, going in and finding whoever's in power and throwing them out of power and taking their stuff and, you know, redistributing it or whatever, a violent revolt, trying to, trying to tear down the existing structures um, and sort of explained, you know, how Christianity is more of a, return to the proper ordering of things, to the, the structures, hierarchies in nature, in creation that, that, you know, created by God that are there, you know, sort of divinely that what a, what a non-religious person who believes in, you know, objectivity of some kind might call just a natural law or whatever, that it's about restoring that, getting it to its proper alignment, having proper relationships between the highest and the lowest and everything between not just the low overthrowing the high or not the opposite of that, the high oppressing the low. And so the part two was like a response to people who were critical of that. Now, I didn't see the critiques of this. I can imagine that, right? I can imagine sort of the social gospel, social justice, like, no, Jesus was a revolutionary. He was like a hippie. You want everybody to live in a commune and what, you know what I mean? Um, and, and, you know, I, 
not the hippie commune part, but I absolutely identify with, I'm drawn to, I resonate with a kind of rebellious revolutionary sort of um, ethos. Like in, in all the stories, you know, I, I always resonate with the kind of the rebel, right? The Han Solo character, the like, who's not working against the structure, um, but who's not like an insider, not part of it. He's kind of, he's kind of a rebel, right? And I like that. that, that appeals to me. So I get that. So Peugeot was sort of, you know, addressing like, um, you know, sort of uh, balancing out the previous episode about how Christianity is not revolutionary. And making clear that it's also not about like maintaining some, you know, it's not just about maintaining the status quo just because, right? Because the, the status quo is often oppressive. The hierarchical structure, um, you know, the, those on top are often oppressive to others, et cetera. And so he was kind of talking more about like, what are the, what is, what is the relationship between the low and the high, whether it be in poverty or in, in other senses. I, I, always, I always hate it when it's restricted only to material wealth like oh the low are people who are don't have a lot of money and the higher people have a lot of money i think that's kind of weirdly i idolatrous of material possession but that's not I, that's not what i think peugeot meant anyway as he's sort of going through and talking about this he, he made a couple offhand comments now these can be completely they, they like it's possible that he and i ha, don't disagree at all and it's uh only a difference in definition and words that are used it's possible but the way that I use certain words and definitions. Um, he said a few things that I, I just don't feel were quite accurate or a little too loose. So he said, and again, this is not like a call out video at all. This is just me processing the way that I think about these things. Um, Cause it's always useful when you hear another perspective. He said that Christianity uh, does not, is not laissez-faire capitalism or does not lead to laissez-faire capitalism. And then a second thing he said was that Christianity is not a system where, you know, like in laissez-faire capitalism, uh, a businessman, if his employee just isn't producing profit, he just fires them if they're not profitable, right? That there are other considerations and that he has a, he has a duty to them, a moral duty in different ways that goes beyond just making sure the business is healthy. And again, there's a very charitable way I could interpret both of those statements in which I could, I could find them uh, not in contradiction with uh, Christianity or, or where I could, I could agree with them. But the interpretation, the way that I define most of those things, um, I do find some, some conflict or some disagreement. So let's start with the first one, that Christianity doesn't lead to laissez-faire capitalism. I think it's the only thing that it can lead to, period, genuine Christianity, because capitalism as I define it, uh, it's simply private ownership, private property, which, which means eventually some individual owns, you know, individuals own everything that's out there, including what we call the means of production, businesses, machinery, whatever. And they pay people to work it. They work, you know, like the, there's, there's details in the system, but those are all emergent. And, and so private ownership of the means of production, but everything, private property and uh, freedom freedom to trade. Um, those are not, it is, capitalism is not a laissez-faire capitalism, which means minimal, uh, in my, in my ideal view, zero government intervention. Um, that's not a positive system. It's not a policy. It's not created by a policy. It's not created by a government. It's not enforced by anything. Laissez-faire capitalism is an emergent order. It is an emergent system. It's dynamic and changing, but it's emergent when one condition is met, when violence is not initiated. That's it. When no one is forced to do anything in particular by a government at the point of a gun, now they may have duties, obligations, contractual agreements with each other, et cetera, but it's, it's what emerges. It's what emerges. You have to initiate violence to prevent it from emerging, period. You must. It will emerge always and everywhere because the nature of property, for example, um, the nature of exchange, the nature of uh, production and savings and these things 
And, and then you, you know, it gets more and more complex as people engage with each other, but it is a negative system. It's merely the absence of the use of violence in economic exchanges or in anything. So Christianity is not a religion of initiating violence. I think violence in self-defense is permissible in Christianity, although not even always preferable. I mean, Jesus and the disciples all chose martyrdom instead of self-defense. I think they could have been morally justified to use violence and to defend themselves, but they found that to be less preferable than not resisting at all and choosing martyrdom, right? That's how radical Christianity is when it comes to violence. I mean, when, when the rich man came to Jesus and said, what should I do to be saved? Jesus was speaking to his heart. He wasn't saying to be saved, you have to, you got to change the outcomes for the poor. Otherwise you can't be saved unless they get rich. He understood that there was something in that man's heart he needed to do. So he said, give your possessions to the poor, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor. Then what happened? Scripture tells us the man walked away, dejected. He walked away. Did Jesus say, Peter, John, get your swords, chase him down, hold him up, tell him, give your stuff away, or we'll throw you in a cage, and if you resist, we'll kill you? No, but that's what government does. That's what government is. It is the only thing government is, the one and only only distinguishing feature that makes government different from any other institution, a business, a church, a charity, whatever, is it claims a monopoly. It claims that it can legitimately initiate violence. It can tell you, give us your money or we will murder you. Obey this policy or we will murder you. And people say, well, it's not murder. They just issue fines and whatever. Don't pay the fines. Then what happens? They come to your house, try to take you away. Say, I'm not going to let you take me away. I haven't done anything wrong. Eventually, murder. Violence is always the thing at back of every law, every policy. Always. It is the single, that is what government is. It is the use of violence. If you say, oh man, I really support green initiatives. Well, what does that mean? You support trying to convince people peacefully to purchase products that you think are green or to change their lifestyle in a way that you think are green or whatever? Or does it mean passing a law? If it means passing a law, it means the use of violence. And you cannot delegate rights that you yourself don't have. If you feel it's morally wrong to walk to your next door neighbor, to put a gun to their head and say, start recycling, or I'm going to kill you. Does that sound Christ-like to you? If it does not, then lobbying for, advocating for, supporting a law, the government says, you must now recycle or else pay a fine or else get a whatever. You can't. It's not, you don't have that moral right. That's the use of violence. That's what it is. It's not peaceful persuasion. It's violence. So. Anything that requires the initiation of violence, not self-defense, is in contradiction to the, the, the law of God, to, to, to Christianity, which means any restriction on market exchanges, minimum wage laws, anything, things that have good intentions, things that you believe produce good outcomes. Um, I, can, I can spend all, all day, years explaining to you how interventions uh, don't produce good outcomes. Uh, they, always, they always make things worse than allowing people to, to find equilibrium. But even if you believe that, it doesn't matter. You, you are not called to use the tools of the kingdom, to use the tools of violence to force people to do what you think is right. So, so yeah, Christianity, the absence of the initiation of violence in bringing about the, the, the ends that, that we desire as Christians, it does result in laissez-faire capitalism. Absolutely. Now, does that mean laissez-faire capitalism, you know, 
again, it's a negative system. It's, it's what emerges. It's people being free in the marketplace. Does it make them more moral? Well, no, it doesn't make them more moral. Now, I've written an entire short book on the morality of capitalism, and, and I argue that compared to any other system, again, you always have to ask compared to what? Compared to any other system, which every single alternative uses violence, people have a better opportunity to become more moral under capitalism. And the incentive structure over the long term, it tends to align moral behavior, at least outwardly, outwardly moral behavior with profit in the long term. Again, you can do a lot of you know, cheating and whatever, but you can do that in any system. The fact that, there, that it prohibits monopolies, right? If you're talking of a negative system with no violence, you can't, you can't say you must buy my product or I'll kill you, like governments can say. Um, it forces competition which forces people to understand how to treat people well, how to treat customers well. Um, but it's not, it's not itself, it's not salvation, right? You don't worship at the feet of the market or the profit motive or whatever. I think they're incredible things. I think they are a reflection of the genius of creation that people pursuing their own means of survival and their own self-interest, even wicked people. What, what does Christ say? What, what, you know, but he, what was meant for wicked is turned for good, right? That's, that's a, a integral part of the Christian story. Things meant for evil are often turned for good. That's the market at a large scale. Like even selfish jerks trying to, you know, make money off of you, whatever. If they are not granted any kind of government protection or monopoly or regulatory barriers that keep their competition out, there's really only one way to do that in the long term. They can rip you off in the short term, but in the long term, it's to create value for you. And what, what maybe they intended for evil. So, I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible how it works. I, I can tell. I think it's, I think it's actually a, a testament. It gives me chills. It gives me chills when I observe the workings of the market, like in Leonard Reed's eye pencil and the interconnectedness um, of all these strangers working, working for their own interests, creating this incredible network. Anyway, but that's not the point. The point is it's, it's not a, oh, you must advocate for free market capitalism and you must like, you know, put on a hat or something, put on a monocle. I don't know what the outfit is. Or, no, it's not about being true. It's just don't initiate violence and don't advocate the initiation of violence. And when you do that, there is nothing but laissez-faire capitalism that can emerge. Now, the second part is a little more interesting. I'm, this is unprofessional to drink my coffee while I'm, but I never said I was professional. The second part about, you know, in, in the Christian worldview, you don't just fire an employee if they're not performing. Now, I think that's very interesting because it may be true, but I don't think it is true by necessity in any way. You may have, you may know that to serve Christ means you've got some employee and they are they are far inferior to what you could get for what you're paying them uh, if you went and found somebody else on the market. Um, and maybe they're help causing your business to lose money. You may feel that to serve Christ correctly, you may feel very strongly for whatever reason. Maybe if I fire this person, they'll be out on the street or, you know, they'll, they'll whatever. Maybe they have a criminal record and no one else will hire them and they'll go back to crime. And, and you feel, like it, it is a, it's my duty to keep this person on, even if I take a loss. That absolutely can happen. And that's absolutely something that a Christian needs to be aware of. But I don't think you can say that the idea of firing an employee who is not creating value in and of itself is not Christian. In fact, I think that is a very, very subtly dangerous idea. Because what is a business? A business is a group of people who have come together under some contractual terms with a goal. And the goal ultimately is to create value. Now, the creation of value, value in the economic sense is subjective. It's based on what people, you know, how, like how valuable is a, is a gallon of water? It depends. Are you in the desert about to die or are you in a swimming pool? Well, I don't know if you want to drink the swimming pool water, but you get my point. 
So economic value is subjective. It's not the same as moral value or ontological value in some sense. It's um, you know the, the, how much people value things. The creation of value happens when someone or some ones they take a resource that is valued at a certain level on the market relative to other resources, relative to the, to the time cost, which can be expressed in money and other terms to obtain that resource. It's valued at a certain amount. They take it, they do something with it, and then they go and sell it. And the amount they sell it for is higher than the original price and the cost of what they did to it. It's called a profit. Profit is nothing other than a signal that value was created. Because let's say there's a pile of potatoes that I, you know, a bunch of potatoes in the ground and I dig them up. I could sell those potatoes to somebody, let's say for $10. That's the price I can find on the market. So that's what, you know, the next person, whatever it is, whoever I can find, that's, that's, that's what they're valued at. And the more extensive markets get, the better and more accurate those signals of value get and they adapt and they adjust and they're all you know, flexible. But at, any, at a given time, let's say I can sell them for $10. Let's say I take those potatoes, I cut them up, I wash them off, throw them on a tray, put some salt on them, throw them in the oven, and I make French fries. Let's say that took me an hour of my time. And let's say I value an hour of my time because the next best thing I could do with that hour, somebody would pay me $20 for. So that's $20 plus the $10 I could have gotten from the potatoes on the market, $30. Now I take this big giant batch of fries, I go put them in little things and sell them for five bucks a piece. And people voluntarily pay me $5 for this, which means they express through their action, they value what they obtain more than the $5 they gave up to get it. That's how economic value works. They wouldn't have done it otherwise. So they value was created for them. They started with $5. They ended up with something that was valued more than $5 by them. Let's say after I sell them all, I earn $40 total. Now I have, I can see the $40 I earn is evidence. It's an indication that that profit because I spent $30, $20 for an hour of my time that I could have, you know, with my opportunity cost, $10 for the raw resource. Maybe the salt was a few pennies. Um, electricity in the oven. I, the profit I made, that $10, that is a signal that I created $10 worth, at least, of value that didn't previously exist. My time had a value already that I could sell for $20, which means somebody valued it at that amount, which means it was going to create that much value for them above, above the next best alternative. The potatoes were valued in the market by $10. You know, $10. But that additional $10, that was newly created value. I created that. And it was value that other people obtained. And the profit is my indication of the value I created for them. It's a measuring stick. So I have just expanded the overall wealth of the world by taking a resource, mixing it with another resource, doing something with it, and finding a market who valued it more than the inputs. Now, conversely, let's say I could only sell those for $2 each and I lost money. I sold $20 worth, but I put in $20 of my time and $10 in that case, I have actually destroyed value. I, I took those potatoes. You know, let's, let's simplify it a little bit. Let's just say I took the potatoes, did something to it, forget my labor inputs. They were valued at 10 bucks, and then I sold them as fries and made eight bucks. I destroyed value. I took a resource that was valued at one thing on the market. I did something to it and made it less valuable on the market. And again, the market is just the aggregate of individual people's subjective values. But I have destroyed value. Now, if you continue to destroy value, you reduce the, the value for everyone in the world and you reduce the quality of life. You reduce prosperity, opportunity, uh, all the things that come with increased value creation, with increased wealth, uh, health, less poverty, less suffering, all these, all these sort of you know, material things, granted. And I'm not I, I, uh, idolatry idolizing those. Those are less important than, than spiritual things. 
Um, but they're connected too. You don't just reject the material things and say that they're bad. They're not, they're redeemed as well. That's why Christianity is so much bolder and braver than say Gnosticism. Um, that's value destruction. And there really isn't a neutral. You're either creating value or destroying value. I mean, you can, you know, take things and, and just never make a profit, always break even exactly. But that's more of an accounting concept. Ultimately, things fluctuate all the time. You're either creating value or you're destroying value. You can, you can push value around, but that usually ends up in the destruction of value. Because if you push it around, there's a cost to pushing it around and you don't know the alternative. Um, so you always want to be looking for how you can create value. That's how you survive as an individual in the market because you need food, you need water, you need shelter. But I'd also argue that's how you're wired. That's how you're built. That's how you're created. Fill the earth, subdue it, right? Co-creators. You are, you are expanding, prospering, growing. And I'm not saying it's like prosperity gospel, like, oh, you got to get rich or you're not a Christian. Not at all. Nothing like that. But any act you engage in, you ideally, you don't want to destroy value. You don't want to take something and make it worth less to all the humans around you than it was before you, you did something with it. Just as a general rule, again, if you do it, it basically is a death cult. If every business lost money every year, it would be a death spiral. And a culture that worships that, that says operating at a loss is moral and operating at a profit is bad. That's basically a death cult. It's basically saying humans ought to destroy value. They ought to destroy their own substance, their own means to survive. That's the only, the only good is if you're destroying value. And now I don't think you should worship profit or the creation of value and say the only good is if you're materially progressing either. But I think it's far more in line with what Christians are called to be in the realm of business, in the market to create value, of course. So that brings me to the employee. If you have an employee that you're paying to, to perform something with your business and they are making your business less profitable than if you had a different alternative employee you could replace them with, you're creating less value for the world than you could. And the goal of your business is to create value for the world. And, and, and you know, for the world, that includes you, right? I mean, it's up to you how much of that value you want to take in the form of pay or you know, in form of profit or dividends or however you want to do that. But if an employee is either destroying value, like actively costing you more uh, money than they create in value, um, or producing less value than you could get from someone else, as a business with the value creation as the goal, I think it's one completely within the Christian ethic to say, I've got to let that person go. This contract where I've, I've told you, you can work here under the following conditions if you're creating the following value. And if you're not, I'm gonna find somebody else who can. That's the way we all operate, right? Like nobody does, like the distinction between consumer and producer or business person and customer or employee and owner, I, those distinctions are often dramatically exaggerated because when you think about all economic activity, it's all an exchange and both parties to the exchange, you can give them different labels, but they're two individuals. I have something that you want. I have something that you want. Let's trade. That's all it ever is, right? So think of how you operate when you engage in exchange. If, if you were to say that it is wrong to fire an employee who's not creating enough value or who's destroying value, then you must also say it is wrong for you to buy a product just because it's better than a competing product. It would be like saying you have a duty to buy the worst products on the market so that they don't, so that those companies don't go out of business. You have a duty to buy products that make your life worse, that destroy value for you. Again, if that's a duty, then that's a death cult. That's a death cult. That's worshiping of, worshiping of suffering, and it's a, it's a hatred of humanity in a way, in a really sinister way. And I think most of the environmental movement, frankly, is, is completely 
most people are just well-meaning. Oh, I just like trees and water and it looks gross when I see a, you know, dirty cup in one. That's, that's yucky. We should take care of the earth. But what's behind some of the most sort of radical, the people pushing a lot of this stuff, besides just rent seeking, just, just using it to get government subsidies and stuff like that, which is the vast majority of the economic activity in the so-called green movement. But the, those were deeply ideologically, philosophically concerned. It's, a, it's an anti-life, anti-human cult, kind of a death cult. It's basically like every unit of human prosperity, of human success, every time a human feels good or achieves something or lives well, part of earth dies. And the solution is for humans to suffer so that earth may live. It's this zero sum idea and that humans are always the part of the equation that's got, that's got to go, right? Have fewer kids, consume fewer things. You know, it's like the more you suffer, oh, well, I drive a really crappy, tiny little car because it's, it's green. And I donate money to carbon offsets, which, you know, they're all squandered away. I mean, all the green technology, don't get me started on the economics of it. All of it, pretty much without exception consumes more resources in its production than it can produce. It literally destroys value. Solar panels, windmills. Again, here's, a, here's an easy tell. If it requires a government subsidy, which is putting a gun at your neighbor's head and saying, I will murder you if you don't give me your money. And then taking that money and saying, only with this money that we've taken from people against their will, is this industry able to survive only with this subsidy? That's a surefire sign that that, is, that industry, that product is destroying value because they're taking something, whatever's needed to create the, the windmill, all the raw materials and whatever that are valued in the market at X. They're mixing it with some labor valued at a certain thing and then they're selling it. And what they sell it for is less than what it costs to put in. So they have to get got money that was stolen from people at gunpoint at the threat of murder in order to make up the difference. That's almost all green technology. And when you start to understand that's, that's again, that's a death cult. It's a spiral of talk about sustainable. It is utterly unsustainable. Eventually you run out of other people's money, right? Like if you're not creating value, you're taking value from people to subsidize the destruction of value. You're rewarding the destruction of value with subsidies taken away from people who actually created value. You think about how twisted that is. That's what's going on in that scenario. So that's why I would say, obviously on an individual basis, and, and employers are like, employers are not calculating machines. They are not homo economicus who just are operating in this market equilibrium vacuum uh, ever. I mean, get in, run a business. I've run several, right? But get in, work with a business owner. I've done this several times. It's so inefficient and discombobulated. It's this constant search. It's this chaos, right? When you get to the individual level, it always looks like chaos. Yet in the aggregate, if markets are left free, it's incredible the harmony that comes about. Go read Bastiat. Hey, if you like Peugeot, French, you know, French last name, Jonathan Peugeot, Frederick Bastiat, French guy. He's awesome. Phenomenal. Go read that which is seen, that which is unseen, or economic harmonies, or economic sophisms. Um, but on the individual level, right, it's, it's chaotic. So not only employers are like, they're not able to calculate in some precise way, this person is destroying N units of value. I must replace them with someone who, you know, creates Y units of value, whatever. It's not like that. But there is, it's, there's a huge grace period because hiring and firing sucks. It sucks to fire someone. It feels bad. The first time I ever fired someone, I couldn't sleep for like a week. I just felt bad. You know, it's, just, it's not a fun feeling. And it's really challenging to a business, a lot of friction, a lot of time. It's often like, oh, just leave them on. So there's this huge grace room already, this huge space where it's like, I'm not calculating it down to the penny, but okay, we need to replace this person with someone. This is this person is, you know, all the other employees are basically paying for their problems by having to make up for it and whatever. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to my customers. They're suffering and it's not fair to the world. I'm destroying value or creating less than I could. So to say that that's wrong across the board, that you shouldn't, that Christianity is not a system where you fire people who don't create value. I think that's, that's crazy because the alternative is a death call. However, 
again, on the individual level, business owners, they make these decisions all the time. You know, maybe it's somebody they're, you know, they used to be great. Now they're really old and they're not very useful anymore, but like they, they keep up the morale of the team. You like having them around. You have to, there's all kinds of reasons, just, just purely business reasons that people do this all the time that keep inferior employees on. But then as a Christian, the moral reason, you're not obligated to only create as much value as you possibly can and, and ruthlessly, you know, you're not obligated to do that. It's, it depends. What, what do you feel you serving God in that, in that moment, in that time? What does that look like? And sometimes it's firing the employee and sometimes it's not. I feel like there was one other thing I wanted to touch on, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I wrapped it up. Anyway, I, I just, um, again, I love Peugeot. And, uh, you know, it's not because he's a Canadian and he's French that I'm, um, you know, biased, assuming that he must be a socialist or something. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot, I don't think he's a socialist. Um, I don't think he cares too much about political ideology, and nor do I. Um, but it was kind of like an offhanded comment, like, oh, it's not this laissez-faire capitalism. And I get it. Laissez-faire capitalism, if, if someone were to call the United States economy today laissez-faire capitalism, um, I would understand every bit of hatred. It's, a, it's national socialism. I mean, it's a complete cronyist, like it's insane. Go industry by industry, pharmaceutical, almost zero free market, 100% protected from liability of common law, whatever, subsidies up the wazoo, regulations that keep out competitors. All of the people who run the major corporations are on the boards of all the regulatory bodies that regulate them. There's graft, there's, you know, financial industry. Don't get me started, right? Like retail is probably the most free market. Um, although some of the areas around transportation and shipping and logistics that feed retail are increasingly controlled and, you know, it's a bunch of oligarchy and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I get it. And, and it's not one of those, well, free markets have never been tried. Like it's, it's a continuum, right? The freer the market, the better, right? First of all, the more moral, the less violence that's employed to force people to do things, um, the better. And the more people have a scope to develop morality because they have a free choice and they don't have a gun to their head all the time. But the outcomes are better as well. Oh, okay. That, that, that was the last thing I want to talk about. I'll get there in a second. Um, so it's a continuum, right? So like to the extent that, to the extent that there is a free markets or capitalism, to the extent that it exists in the U.S., um, that's a good thing. And that's not antithetical to Christianity. In fact, again, it's, it's what results when you employ Christian morality in the world. Um, to the extent that it doesn't exist, it's a bad thing, right? And it's, there's always interventions, there's always interruptions and in, in, you know, um, criminal activity and some of those criminals form into very large groups and call themselves governments, right? Um, St. Augustine was, was dead right about that, <laughs> that governments are uh, nothing but highwaymen, except for they tell you they're doing it for your own good, uh, which is more offensive. Um, not governance, not hierarchy, not leadership, um, not structure, not even law and norms and contracts and protection for those contracts. And I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about a monopoly on the initiation of force that says, I'm going to uh, be the one that registers your title, whether you want me to or not. And if you don't pay me, I'll murder you. I'm providing this service for you and I'll kill you if you don't buy it, right? That's different from, um, you know, again, I, 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 I've spent most of my life studying uh, these things. I, I could give you all kinds of articles and things on, and if you've listened to this podcast before, you're very familiar um, with the difference between order and government or governance and government. Um, so this is not a utopian reject all structures and hierarchies and whatever. No, not at all. In the absence of the initiation of violence. I mean, I think it's like, like Tolkien's, you know, Tolkien was a, was a anarchist. Tolstoy was an anarchist. Um, and both of them were very much in favor of structures and um, leaders and order and laws, both natural and human and ecclesiastical. And, you know, these things that they, they, evolve and form and emerge um, and are refined through voluntary processes in the marketplace, in the marketplace of ideas, norms, et cetera. Anyway, the final point I want to make on helping the poor, what does that mean? I've always found it interesting that 
the closer you would call an economy or a culture to free market capitalism, the more concern for the poor exists in that culture. I don't think I've ever seen an exception. Now, part of it could be because the closer, the more free a market, the more wealth it produces and people are wealthier and people can afford to care about the poor when they're wealthy because they're not worried about their own survival. It's hard to, you know, to know the cause and effect, but, but I think there's a deep cultural thing there. Um, that's pretty interesting. Now, there's, there's a question of what, what is a Christian's duty to the poor? And what does that mean? Is it to solve poverty? I don't think it can be that for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. Two, probably the reason Jesus said that, because poverty is, is relative. Equality is impossible. Material equality between people is impossible. And it's not even desirable. Everybody's different. Everybody's made different. Some people are really good at things that are highly valued by others. Some people are really good at things that are only somewhat valued by others. That's not, it's not, a, that's not a moral value. That's just an economic value, right? An economic judgment. Like, oh, this just creates more value for me. You know, you're really good at growing food that helps me live. You're really good at drawing pictures that are nice, but I don't need them to live. So this person commands more, you know, ends up getting more resources through trade than this person. It's not a moral judgment. It's just people are different. So, you know, the idea of ending poverty, you, you can't because there's always someone who has less than someone else. So whoever, whatever, there's always a bottom quartile, right? <laughs> there's always a bottom 10% in terms of whatever you choose to measure. It could be wealth, it could be happiness, it could be whatever you want to call it. People are different. So there's always going to be a bottom, which just means those on one end of the distribution. You can't solve that. It will never go away. It will just get redefined in the, in the wherever the level is will change. I mean, what was considered poor in America 200 years ago was like, you know, you're a couple, you're a couple meals away from death. What's considered poor in America today is you need to take like 20 meals off so you don't die of too much food, right? I'm, I'm not saying that to be glib. Like I'm just expressing how different things, uh, how, how you'll never get rid of poverty or the poor. So what does it mean to serve the poor? I think it means a couple things. I think it means first and foremost, a, a mindset for the person doing the service. And it doesn't matter if that person is rich or poor. You can serve the poor and be poor. You can serve the poor and be rich. You can serve the poor and be middle class. It doesn't matter. I think it's a mindset. It's a reminder that whoever you deem to be poor, they're also a child of God. They're also a divine creation. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I think you can't just accept that mentally and say, oh, I accept that everyone's a child of God. But every time I walk by somebody who stinks and is poor and dirty, I act as if they're not a child of God, right? That's why it's an action. Serve the poor, right? Like whatever that looks like, give them money, be kind to them, smile at them, help them if you can, don't walk away, you know? It's, it's about you understanding that every human is created in the image of God. And then I think it's, you know, okay, what if, what about the part that's not just for me improving my mindset and being more Christ-like in the way that I see the world? What if it's really to change the outcome for them to the extent that that's true, right? You don't have control of it. You can only control yourself, but you can do things to try to help others. I think that's right. There's two layers to that as well. Do you help the person on a fundamental spiritual level or on a material level? Well, I think both matter. And I think they're often interconnected, but in unsuspecting and in, in surprising ways sometimes. Obviously, I would argue that the spiritual level is more important because it's the root, right? Like, what is the cause? Why is this person suffering? Why are they in this dire condition? Why are they poor? It's usually not just because they don't have a $20 bill in their hand or because they don't have a means to get a $20 bill in their hand every day. Now, those are a part, but there's usually something deeper. There's usually other struggles, brokenness, challenges, 
that come down to something much, much deeper. So I think understanding that first we're called to have the mindset just for ourselves to understand that everyone is a, is a child of God and created in his image. And then if we want to help them bring to bear the thing that we have as Christians that non-Christians don't, which is a spiritual understanding, which is an understanding of that the battle is not against flesh and blood. Whatever they're battling against goes deeper, right? Bring that to bear. And then finally, on the material plane, how to help a poor person on the material level. I think that's something that doesn't get a lot of scrutiny. Now, part of it's because if you're focused on having your mindset right and helping them in spirit, then, okay, you give them money. Maybe that doesn't solve their poverty, but it signals to them that you see them as a child of God and maybe it helps heal some of their spiritual wounds and it establishes something there. Maybe you can pray with them. So it's not about solving the poverty, but to the extent that you do want to improve their material conditions, creating value in the marketplace is orders of magnitude more effective than giving people money than charity. Doesn't mean you shouldn't give people money. But again, I'm saying if, if you were only to ask what helps alleviate poverty the most, it's the creation of value and opportunity. Because if I have a business, even if I don't employ any poor people directly, even if I don't sell products to any poor people directly, if I'm creating value, there is now more value in the world than there was before. And those who have that value have the ability to do more things, right? More with less, right? Achieve the same outcome with less input, which means prices come down, which means access to higher quality goods increases, which means opportunities go up, which means I can now expand my business and hire somebody in lower income brackets to do some other aspect that is developing. I mean, look at look at every product, every every major innovation that makes quality of life better. In a, in a somewhat market economy, begins as a luxury good that's not sold to the poor and it's usually not built by the poor. But it ends as something ubiquitous. Air conditioning, television, cars, cell phones. That's accessible and, and held by all. And, and it creates value for all. And it, it increases, you know, reduces poverty, expands opportunity. So I think that's important to the extent that, that Christians are responsible for improving material conditions to the extent that that is a part of a Christian's duty. It's not the thing to be idolized. It's not the only duty by any means, not, not at all. I think it's, it's again, being Christ-like and helping others find truth, find freedom on a spiritual level. But again, what's great about Christianity, what makes it, C.S. Lewis said, it's, it's more more manly, more has a uh, chest to it, is that it doesn't reject the material entirely. It doesn't idolatrize, 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 why can't I get, idolize. Why couldn't I come up with idolize? My goodness, not good. Um, (laughs) It doesn't idolize the material, but it doesn't reject it and say that it's always evil, that it's always, right? It's not money is the root of all evil. The love of money. Money is, money is neutral. Money is a tool. Money is simply a representation of value. It's a representation of past value created. Or, uh, well, we won't get into what inflation is, but that's pernicious. Anyway, um, but the love of money, right? To place money in the position, it's, it's money is a, a tool. But Christians are not called to abandon all tools and float away in their light bodies into the spirit realm. They're called to use tools. They're called to to live, to to actually redeem the material world, to bring it back into alignment with the divine as it should be, to redeem what's fallen. Even, you know, that's why Christ incarnated as a human. That's the whole idea of resurrection. The body resurrects. It's redeemed. It's not some dirty, horrible thing to be escaped from. It's to be redeemed. So to the extent that there is a material level of responsibility in Christians, I think value creation is what we ought to be thinking about. 
certainly not condemning. It doesn't mean you can't give money. It doesn't mean charity is bad, but, but acts that are considered charitable, like on the material level, very often, very often, not only destroy economic value, but they don't always, but very often create conditions for the poor that make escaping spiritual poverty harder. I mean, you know, it's the classic spoiled kid thing. You got a spoiled, rotten kid and they just keep doing self-destructive things and you just bail them out and fund their whole life and pay for their apartment, whether they're employed or not, and subsidize that, you are making it harder for them to ever escape that. You're creating a moral hazard, which is an economic term, but even though it has the word moral in it, but it's a moral term as well, right? Like you're creating a moral hazard. You can't expect humans to have such incredible strength of will that you put them in a position where sinning or not even sinning, just being trapped, being in spiritual bondage, having deep wounds is rewarded, is subsidized, is protected, is coddled. You can't expect them to so easily break out of that. This is not like a tough love, like, well, stop giving the poor money and they'll figure out how to get a job, right? Like it's not, I'm not making that point. Again, it's much more, it's much more nuanced than that. And then it comes down to an individual level. Because remember, society can't act. Abstractions and aggregates, collectives can't act. Only individuals can act. So think about this in the context of your own life as a Christian, if you are one. There are ways to feel good about helping the poor that aren't helping the poor that are maybe even making it harder for them. And one of the primary ones is trying to help the poor through public policy. Again, we've already discussed the the moral side of it. It's the initiation of violence. So it's wrong flat out. But let's just even push that aside. What happens when you say you offload, you outsource your duty to help the poor to a government policy? Oh, I really want a living wage because I'm a Christian and Christians care about the least of these. I'm sorry. That's lazy. Not only is it asking for the initiation of violence, someone to go to a business owner and say, I will murder you if you don't pay people this much money. Not only is it destroying value, because if you, are, if you need to use force, it means that you are people who would otherwise do something at a certain level of value, at a certain exchange rate, will only raise it at the point of a gun It means that raising it is destroying value relative to where it could be. But think about not only those moral aspects. On the practical side, what does it actually mean? You know, if I, if I want to hire, you know, if some kid comes to me and says, you know, Hey, I'm, I have autism and I have a really hard time focusing on certain things or interacting socially I can't, you know, I can't really be one of your typical entry-level employees, but I really want to learn. I really want to get some experience. And maybe I pay a typical entry-level employee $40,000 a year. And they say, I know that I'm not going to be able to create that much value and the pressure is going to be too much. And and it's going to be hard on your business and your other employees if I'm at that level with them and, you know, I'm suffering. But I want to learn, I want to improve, and I want to do what I can to start getting my career going. Can I work for you for $10 an hour? That may be a wonderful thing. And, and let's say I'm not a Christian. Let's say I'm a business owner who doesn't care. Let's say I'm a totally a jerk and I don't care about this person personally at all. I'm purely thinking of my economic interest, which again, business owners really aren't that economically calculated. Let's say I'm purely thinking, I've got my monocle. Even, even being as cold and callous as that, if I could say, okay, yeah, if they wash dishes for me in the back and they do whatever, I could, yeah, I could, I could afford 10 bucks an hour. That would actually be worth it for me. And it's worth it for them. Now, if you come along being a good Christian saying, I'm demanding a living wage of $20 an hour because I care about the poor, that person will not have a job. They will get fired and they probably won't get hired anywhere else because they can't come close to creating $20 worth of value. 
And you're literally cutting off the least of these from opportunity, the true least of these. The percentage of people that make minimum wage in the United States, it's like 1% or something. So think about anyone below that. Those are the true least of these, the people who can't even get hired at minimum wage because it's not worth it. And you raise that minimum wage, you just keep raising that bar and making it harder and harder for those people. Again, we're talking about a small number of people. We're talking about edge cases. This is not, you know, if you remove the minimum wage today, all businesses would not drop their wages in fa- immediately. In fact, I doubt any of them would drop them at all. Maybe a few in a couple places. But there would suddenly be a handful of opportunities on the fringes for some of those people on the margins, as Peugeot likes to talk about, who are priced out of the market by that minimum wage law. And now suddenly they, ha- they can come and say, let me, j- let me work for free because I want to learn. I-, I don't know anything about work. And if it's illegal, you're literally pointing a gun at that person's head too, by the way. You're saying it's illegal for you to offer your services for less than this. You will go to prison. Or, and if you resist, we'll murder you. I'm not, trying to be, I'm not trying to be bombastic. That is, you just need to understand fundamentally, that is what policy, that is what government-backed policy is. So for that person, say, I need to learn and no one will take me because I'm not very good. But can I come for free? Can I come for $5 an hour, $2 an hour? Can I come, right? Taking that away, again, ignore the moral component, the value destruction component. That's not a service to the least of these. It's an easy way to feel like you're doing something. You're doing something big because yes, I can go help one poor person, give them a little money, pay them to mow my lawn, whatever. Pray for them. But I want to help the poor in aggregate. And I can't do that on a big enough level. So I'm going to advocate government to do it because they can do it. They can steal money from get a get billion dollars and go help millions of people, whatever. And now you feel really good. But violence is used, values destroyed. And the target of that assistance is the most needy among them are almost always made worse off by those policies. So all that to say, Peugeot, I love your stuff. And I'm going to keep listening. I really enjoy it. But to the extent that laissez-faire capitalism is, as I define it, simply a, a free market that emerges in the absence of violence and coercion, you would absolutely expect to see that in a Christian culture, in a Christian world. And to the extent that you are not violating some higher command that makes you feel like you ought to keep an employee on board, firing an employee who's not creating value is not at all antithetical to Christianity. Worshiping operating at a loss and denigrating operating at a profit is very susceptible to become an anti-human death cult. Um, again, worshiping profit uh, is also very dangerous, right? I'm not, I'm not making that point. And I'm not saying that material success has any equivalence to holiness. Oh, that person's rich, they must be holy. Oh, that person's poor, they must be you know, unholy. No, nothing like that at all. I, there's, there, there is not an equivalence there. I mean, read, read Ecclesiastes, <laughs> read, read uh, Proverbs, right? You see all kinds of like, some evil men get rich, some good men suffer, you know? It doesn't mean there's no causal relationships and it's all random. And I do think that wealth among Christians and as well as kind of like bleeding heart secular types is very misunderstood. And there's this assumption that you only get wealthy by being a bad person. Which, by the way, the more government intervenes in the market, the more that becomes true. In a complete totalitarian economy, you do only become wealthy by doing bad things, by being corrupt. The freer the market, the less true that is. Doesn't mean it can't be true, but it's less true. But I think people underestimate what it takes character-wise to be the type of person who can handle wealth. And not everyone can handle wealth, and some people it destroys. But those who accumulate it over time slowly and it doesn't destroy, that takes a strength of character that I think should be studied and admired, not just immediately dismissed. Now, if they turn that to evil means and they translate their wealth into power over others and control and manipulation, of course, that's horrible. But that's revealing what's in every human. Like that's the norm. Humans try to do that stuff. Most just don't have the resources to do it. And those that do, do it at a bigger level. But people with wealth that don't do that, 
I think there is so much to learn because the opportunity for evil is so much greater with, with wealth. And those who don't act on it, and yet they have wealth, I think it takes a lot of humility to admit, if I had as much money as that person, I would probably do worse things than them. And to look at wealthy people who aren't horrible people, they don't have to be saints, but, and say, how have they managed to have the strength of character to do that? I think that's something, anyway, that's an aside. But my, my overall point is just that, about freedom, free markets, um, and value creation and you know your relationship with an employee and things like that as a christian again it doesn't require you to fire or not fire to give to charitable organizations or not to try to make a profit and start businesses or not you're not required to as a christian but you're also not prohibited from and i think either one of those you can err if you say you're required to make as much profit as possible and never donate to charities because they destroy value and make the poor dependent and i mean I think that is a, um, a kind of, uh, you know, again, it, it, it puts the material on too high of a pedestal. It says the material outcomes are all that matter. But I think the opposite saying, nope, all material success is bad. Ever firing someone because they're not creating enough value is horrible. Making a profit is bad. That's almost material idolatry in the opposite direction. I was going to say it's, it's the opposite. It's the rejection of the material. And Christianity, again, redeems the material. But it's not even a rejection of the material. That would be like a total like aestheticism, like, a, you know, like I'm going to go live as a hermit and reject this. But, you know, you can do that. But if you demand it, I think that's a problem. But, but the prophet is evil. Everyone should, you know, we should force people to be equal. We should be... That's material idolatry but it's almost like an idolatry of the destruction of material. It's like, I am so threatened by material wealth and success that it must all be destroyed because I can't handle it. Or I can't handle to see that some people are unequal and whatever they have. And I get, so we must destroy it all. It's like this self-hatred, this condemnation of humans thriving, being a part of creation, you know? Um, like, humans are called to tend the garden and to, you know, be co-creators, as I mentioned, and to say that they ought to always be destroying value. Otherwise it's somehow dirty or evil. I think that's a, that's a idolatry of, it's an idolatry of the negative aspects of material possessions. It's looking at material possessions as dark idols that you can never touch and always casting them aside because they're always dirty and irredeemable versus the other, which is uh, looking at them as the holiest thing that you must you know, worship. And, and neither of those are true. That's a complex thing in Christianity. The material is not rejected, but it's redeemed. It's not worshiped, but it's brought into alignment with what's right. Subservience to the higher order, not subjugation and, you know, rejection, but redemption. So there's a long ramble. Maybe somebody got something out of it. I certainly did. I enjoyed this. I thought about doing this when it started rolling around in my head last night. And I was like, eh, what's the point? And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So there's that.